Well, we're in the book of Romans, and tonight we're going to pick up in Romans 3.21. And if it's okay with you, even if it's not, because I'm the guy with the mic, we're just going to jump right into Romans chapter 3, verse 21. It says, But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known, to, w- to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There's no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance, he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it, did, did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. Where then is boasting? It's excluded. Because of the law? Because of what law? The law that requires works? No, because of the law that requires faith. For we maintain that a person is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Or is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles too? Yes, of Gentiles too, since there's only one God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through that same faith. Do we then nullify the law by this faith? Not at all. We uphold the law. This teaching in a sentence is, we cannot keep God's law, comma, so we need a savior. That's it. That's it, and I want to pray to that end now. Please join me. Lord, we come together with the mind and heart of Christ, and we pray tonight you would give us fresh hope in you, not in our own efforts. Lord, I pray that no one here tonight would be made to feel condemned and isolated and in darkness because of their failure to keep your standards And on the other end, Lord, I pray that no soul in here would feel like they somehow are qualified before you because of the religious or good or moral things they do, because of the positive ways in which they compare themselves to other people who they deem less righteous or more evil. But Lord, I pray rather that all of us, all of us would see our desperate condition before you, that we're broken and we are in desperate need of a Savior that we cannot possibly meet your glorious standards, that not even the best of us can even come close. Lord, all of our deeds, your word says, are like filthy rags, all of our good deeds. Would you show us tonight the glory of the cross That the best gift ever offered has been given unto us through our Savior and Lord and King, Jesus Christ. It offers a better gift than the lottery. It offers a better gift than the man or woman of our dreams. It offers a better gift than the most meaningful of careers. Lord, and we thank you that if we know you, we're playing with house money because everything else is just gravy. Because we already have it all. Lord, you tell us in your word that it is the Holy Spirit who helps us to see spiritually, that without the ability to see, without the illumination of you, Holy Spirit, that you provide, 
we remain in darkness and we cannot see the light. This gospel message is so easy to understand logically, but our evil and foolish and hard hearts are unable to see and understand it without you. For those who don't know you tonight, please, Jesus, give them the gift of faith. Through your grace, please, all of us who know and love you, cry out together with the same mind and heart of Christ that you would do that work. For those of us who already know and love you, but who are hard-hearted, where the gospel has not been new or fresh or exciting or heartbreaking, that you would do it once again, Lord. You'd blow the dust out from our hearts, that you would take our crusty and resistant soul and make it soft again, that you would show us the scandal of the cross. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, there's no escaping guilt, is there? Even people who say that truth is relative, that is, those who say that morals and ethics are up to the individual, there is no absolute truth, they too are trapped by guilt like everyone else. In telling you that, they, that you should agree with them, that they're right about truth being relative, and you're wrong about truth being absolute, they are affirming that there is absolute truth. Because they're saying that you're wrong and they're right. We can't escape, of it, escape it. All of us feel guilty about not doing what we know we should do. Whatever our sense of righteousness is. But this sense of righteousness at its root is built into us by God. It's not cultural norms. It's not society. It's been from the very beginning. There is a sense of right and wrong in every culture in the entire world. We know that billions are spent in the self-help industry to accomplish our own vision for right living, or you could even say personal righteousness. Books, talk shows, blogs, TED Talks, and all the rest are aimed at giving us answers and solutions to the guilt we feel about the things we know we ought to do but fail to accomplish. How to make friends, how to make a great deal, how to live the life you've always wanted, how to get the person of your dreams, how to stop worrying, how to break addictions, and all the rest. It can be dizzying. These authors and speakers are like modern priests and priestesses and prophets who worship at the God of self. I'm not trying to demonize all these resources. I'm sure most of the information is good, but it starts in the wrong place. Now, the Bible and the self-help industry do share one thing in problem. They sit one thing in common. They say that we all have a problem at our root, that there is a problem with humanity. But in the self-help industry, they say that the problem in all of us is an unfulfilled self, that we somehow have not reached self-actualization. And if we'll just buy their book or listen to their TED talk or follow their blog, then somehow we will realize our full potential. And that will be our salvation, our righteousness. The Bible says the root of our problem is sin, both for the immoral and for the immoral, for the irreligious and for the irreligious. The root problem in all of us is sin, and it is a terminal problem that will result in death. God, through Paul here, makes it plain in Romans chapter 1 through 3 that this problem is sin. He spends three whole, problem, three whole chapters saying, you cannot be made right with God on your own. You cannot do it. 
Paul writes to both Jews and non-Jews living in Rome who were new in faith in Christ. But here in this section, he's mainly addressing Jews, young Jewish believers, young in their faith, meaning young in their faith. But unlike those in the self-help movement, they were looking to a different place, but also a wrong place to find righteousness. They were looking at their own ability to adhere to the law. That is the rituals and commands contained in the Bible, in the Old Testament more specifically. They were looking at their own ethnic and racial identification as Jews as making them right with God. So Paul, from the start of his letter to the Romans up until our passage tonight, starting in Romans chapter 3, verse 21, has established that all are unrighteous, that no one even does good, really, at the heart, that all of even what we see as our good deeds are uh, really for self, that all are separated from God. But in chapter 3, verse 21, he moves to how all can be made righteous. So he puts us all in the same camp. No matter who you are, no matter where you come from, we are all in sin, but there's a way to be righteous before God. And he follows this theme all the way through uh, where we're at tonight, through 521. So the focus tonight is how God makes sinners righteous. It's not a subjective subject any more than it is to discuss how to grow a flower. We would all say that to grow a flower, you need water, you need good soil, and you need sunshine. Now, all of you right now are thinking, you, you know, gardeners, of some flower that doesn't need one of those things. I'm saying generally speaking. That's what all flowers need. Now, so it is with Christ. Righteousness can only be found through Jesus, period. We might disagree with things like dunking or sprinkling for baptism. We might disagree in worship and it needs to happen through a choir or it needs to happen through a worship band. We might disagree on Bible translations, whether you should read out of the King James Version or the, the New International Version. But every true believer knows that every human being can only be made right with God through faith in Jesus Christ. So like I said, we see this transition in verse 21, Romans 3.21 that I just read. It says, but now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. So the law and the prophets, that is the Old Testament, was there to say this is sin. This is sin. To show what sin was and then to show us that we would not be able to fulfill God's law to be free from sin on our own, that we couldn't do it. The message of the Bible is consistent throughout from the very beginning to the end. And verse 21 starts out with a beautiful but, a gorgeous but. See, now you're listening. Like, that, the pastor just said but. No, I'm talking about the conjunction. And it's probably the best and most beautiful ever written in the world because it contrasts the darkness of human sin with the glory of the gospel. You see, chapter 3, verse 21 summarizes what's been set up until that point. It says, therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sin. So God spent generations and generations of his people trying to be made right with him. And they couldn't do it through the law. It had to happen through faith. But Paul, then with one very strong but... Sorry, I couldn't resist it once again. Introduces the light of the gospel. He says again, but now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known. 
So that now that he's referring to is what we're, the time period we're in now, that you are in and that the, the receivers of this letter in Rome were in then. It's the same time period in redemptive history. It's the period of history marked by the death and resurrection of Christ, and it opens a new way for the gospel. The passage goes on in verse 22. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came through Jesus Christ, or came by Jesus Christ, rather. So just as all are unrighteous apart from Christ, so all can be made righteous through Christ. doesn't matter what your uh, uh, spiritual background is like or what your adherence to morality is like. All fall short of God's glorious standard and it can only be made right through Jesus Christ. And I want to state this very clearly. I want to be crystal clear. You can only live the life that your soul craves through Jesus Christ. You can only become fully human through Jesus Christ because he created you and we have uh, everything we have, every good thing comes from him. To try to find anything good apart from Christ will be a failed experiment. You know, this is monumental because it's not like a resume or report card. You see, all of life, this worldly righteousness points to getting what you deserve, whether it's your grades, you speak about or you write about or somehow you work out, uh, you demonstrate your knowledge of a particular subject matter, and then you, you receive the deserving grade. Or for your resume, you write out all your competencies and qualifications and you leave out those things that may make you look like you're not qualified in hopes of becoming gainfully employed. Every culture and religion believes the same with God, that if your good outweighs the bad by the time you die, somehow you'll be in God's favor. But if that's our view of a relationship with God, we're sunk. And most of the Bible, the entirety of the Bible, if you take the tenor of all of Scripture, all the, the thousands of years of redemptive history that we have recorded from Genesis through Revelation, communicates this one single message you cannot be made right with God through self-effort, no matter how good you think you might be. But the account of Jesus' earthly ministry contained in the New Testament is filled with people who both, many of them did not have a good spiritual resume, and others had an exquisite religious resume, at least by worldly standards. And you see some of them in the same story. You know, one story, for instance, in the life and ministry of Jesus is a part that the Pharisees, who were kind of the religious police of the day, who interpreted the law and provided some accountability for God's people to obey it, uh, had very good, they had a tremendous influence in the culture at that time, among particularly the, the Jews. And so they throw this party, and they invite Jesus, this rabbi that they're curious about. And a woman comes in. Who is a pro she's a prostitute. I mean, she stuck out like a sore thumb. Why would she put herself at such great risk? Why as a prostitute put yourself in front of ones who are going to judge you? She could have been stoned right then and there. And we don't know this, but maybe even some of those Pharisees had slept with this woman and would be filled with guilt and condemnation when she walked in. 
So this prostitute, why would she do that? Well, not only does she just come in there, but she washes Jesus' feet with her tears, and she dries them with her hair. That's not religious observance, is it? The Pharisees, that's the contrast in the story. They were giving themselves to religious observance, trying to be made right with God through the law. This woman was filled with a deep and satisfying and overwhelming, heartbreaking love for Jesus. We don't know the rest of the story, but she knew who Jesus was. She had had previous interactions with Jesus. And she was worshiping him for his tremendous love and compassion. So we see it all throughout the New Testament, this, this, this uh, uh, failure to meet God's demands. We see it in the Old Testament before Christ, where God tells his people, I'm not looking for your sacrifices. I'm looking for a humble and a contrite heart. I want your heart. Because so many times God's people would do all of these religious things, but their hearts were far from him and uh, in their private lives, behind closed doors, or even in their own hearts. They were religious and even immoral, but they did all the right stuff. They made these extravagant sacrifices, sacrificing prized animals and all, all the rest, obeying the letter of the law, but not the heart. So, this is very different than priding yourself on a great religious resume, like going to church, serving, or being nice without a deep and passionate love for the Lord. We're talking about the heart here. So we know now that Paul has focused on the reality of righteousness through Christ alone. I think we've established that. Righteousness comes through Christ alone. But how do we become righteous? If it's through faith in Christ and not by our own efforts, how does this faith thing work? How do we get it? How do we walk in it? That's what I want to spend the rest of our time tonight on. And I'm going to ask two more questions to get at that answer of how do we become righteous. So the first is, what is righteousness? What is it? In Romans 3.24, it says, And all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. This is a super important verse. We have to listen to this. This is super important. First, it tells us that Christ's righteousness is given how? How is Christ's righteousness given? Freely. Good. Good job, guys. Usually it takes you a while. You know, I know you're awake. That's good. Imagine that, the greatest gift ever given that we can possibly imagine that none of us are going to be able to fully grasp until we see him face to face, and maybe not even then. It's given freely. Second, righteousness is given by grace. We didn't earn it. You cannot deserve or be owed salvation because of who you are. Okay, it doesn't matter if you save someone's life. It doesn't matter if you give your career to helping and serving others. It doesn't matter if you're the best parent in the world. It doesn't matter. We are not owed it. In fact, the opposite is true. What Paul's been saying for chapters now and what was communicated in last week's message and even the week before, what we deserve is to be separated from God for all eternity because he made us. And I think you would agree with me, the gift of life is a pretty big deal. 
And he created us with certain standards in mind, with a vision for our life to live a full and abundant and joy-filled life. And we broke the deal because we decided to go our own way. We thought we knew best, so God gave us what we wanted, which was a life without him. And that's why we have famine and disease and cancer and children who die and all the rest. Because we chose life without the life giver. Because we thought we knew best and the result is death. We see it on the very ground we walk in. We see it in the very oceans we swim in. We see it in the very mountains we climb. With tsunamis and floods and earthquakes and all the rest. All of creation groans for all things to be made right and our own hearts way deep down in our darkest and most broken moments, we know something huge is missing if we're honest with ourselves. Third, righteousness comes through the redemption of Christ. And this word redemption is a big word because it's a word that these Roman believers would have been all too familiar with. It was a word that would have been common in the slave market. And these Roman Christians, their their most horrific memories would be marked by this word redemption. Because you see, back then, uh, people would go into insurmountable debt, and they wouldn't have the resources to pay it off. So they would have to give themselves to slavery because the economy was, was incredibly unjust and preyed upon the poor. And so they would have to give themselves to slavery personally or sell their family into slavery. And usually the enslavement lasted for a lifetime. So God put a law into effect. And it was the law called the kinsman redeemer. A family member could, could pay on behalf of that person and get them out of debt. Be their redeemer. And that's what Jesus is. He paid for us with his very life. And he says, I'm going to give my life on the cross. God in the flesh, taking the wrath of God, God taking God's wrath on himself in the person of God the Son, Jesus, being our kinsman redeemer, redeeming us. It's not by what we did. It's by the work of Jesus Christ. So Jesus traded his life for ours, but there's more to becoming righteous, and that moves us to our second question here. How is righteousness given to us? How is it given to us? I want to read the next verse in a slightly different translation, and just a little side note here. When you read a verse from a different translation, you're not reading someone else's, a different opinion of the verse. You're reading a different translation. It's worded slightly different. different. It's the same verse, the same content, but with different wording, so maybe we can understand it from a different angle. So I started with reading verse 25 in the NIV when I read the whole passage. Now I'm going to read it from the New Living Translation. And here's what it says. It helps us get our minds around it because it's a little more clearly communicated. It says this, for God presented Jesus as the sacrifice for sin. People are made right with God when they believe that Jesus sacrificed his life, shedding his blood. This sacrifice shows that God was being fair when he held back and did not punish those who sinned in past times. So I want to address this, okay? Those who lived before Jesus, so Moses and David and all the rest in the Old Testament, under the Old Covenant before Jesus died and rose again, they were saved not by works even back then. 
they were saved by faith, just as we are. And it was the gift of God. It was by grace. It wasn't by work so that no one can boast. But they were looking forward to faith in Jesus Christ. They were looking forward to the shadow of the cross and the resurrection. You can read all kinds of prophecies in the Old Testament that were somewhat vague, but that point, at least for the reader at that time, but pointed towards the coming Messiah, Jesus. And God would give them the gift of faith for salvation. So God's plan has never changed. So don't believe the person who says the God of the Old Testament is different than the God of the New. The gospel has always been the same from Genesis to Revelation. So now that we got that cleared out of the way, does it seem extreme to you that sin is such a big deal that God would send his son to die for it? That God would send God, again in the flesh, in the person of Jesus Christ, to die? The most unjust death that's ever happened. The most unjust suffering that's ever been dealt out. But in reality, we don't want God to be indifferent to sin. If the only way he could justify his people uh, was to give up his role as judge, he wouldn't be loving. We want God to be a God who is also a God of judgment, the perfect judge. We want God's wrath. Some of you are like, I don't, I don't know about that. I don't, did, did you, I don't, do you want God's wrath? I don't, I don't want God's wrath. Let me explain. Uh, I'm going to steal an illustration from T Timothy Keller that I read years ago that's just too good not to repeat in a talk like this. Some of you have heard it before. Um, you have a couple, a married couple, and uh, one of the spouses commits adultery on the other. If the faithful spouse, upon hearing of the affair, doesn't care and says, oh, that doesn't matter. Let's go to the movies. I don't care. Does the faithful spouse really love the unfaithful one? No. To overlook an offense and just treat it apathetically when one has been unfaithful, when you've been unjustly treated, that's not love. It might be a relationship of convenience. It might be easier or more comfortable than living life without that person, but it's not real love. Because real love requires a sense of injustice and anger and hurt when the fabric, the integrity of that relationship has been torn. And I've talked to many who have gone through this horrible tragedy of adultery and never, never, never have they been apathetic. Now God does not set his justice aside in response to our sin. He turns our sin and the wrath we deserve onto himself in the person of Christ. The, Christ is, the cross is not some kind of compromise that God makes between his love and his wrath. It fulfills both. On the cross, the love and wrath of God were upheld perfectly. And the wrath of God is a very big deal. In Psalm 75, verse 8, it says, In the hand of the Lord is a cup full of foaming wine mixed with spices. He pours it out, and all the wicked of the earth drink it down to its very dregs. Make no mistake, sin is a huge deal because Jesus died for it. And speaking of 
this sacrifice of Christ. In Hebrews 2.17, it says, For this reason he, that is Jesus, had to be made like them. That's us. Fully human in every way in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. Do you know what brings me the most peace and security when I'm going through suffering? It's not trying to find out the answer. When my nephew tragically died, it wasn't I never once struggled with God, why? I didn't struggle with that. You know what brought me the most comfort? Knowing that Jesus understands that he suffered and was tempted in every way, that his best friend and cousin, John the Baptist, was beheaded, and he withdrew and wept real tears. And that when Lazarus, a close family friend, died, he went and wept because he saw how sad the people were, and he knew that he was going to raise Lazarus from the dead. So knowing he can both mourn with those who mourn and know the resurrection's coming, that's pretty powerful. Jesus paid the price we deserve to make us righteous once for all time through the cross. We must be made righteous because God can have no relationship with sin. And so Jesus becomes sin for us. Imagine that, the most wicked and heinous act you can imagine. Jesus took that on as if he was guilty of it. The Lord through Paul, oh, you know, I taught this out of order here. Never mind. Just disregard the Lord through Paul. I, I intentionally said something in a different order here, and so now I've got to fast forward. Da, 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 da. Um, now, when I say wrath is a big deal, the reason I say it is it's the penalty all of humanity deserves and even all of creation. It's the due punishment for sin that stems all the way back to the beginning of God's story. Let me ask you, if your whole family was brutally murdered, would you want justice? Would you want justice? Yes. That's built into us by God. How much more, how much more heinous, how, how much more have we considered, have we committed treason against the almighty God? walking away from him and going our own way when he's given us the gift of life. We know that the earth was created perfectly and that Adam and Eve were created in God's image to have a perfect, unhindered relationship with him. There was no pain, tears, murder, lying, or any of the bad stuff we struggle with today. But then sin entered through Adam and Eve because they tried to live life on their own terms and they got exactly what they wanted, resulting in a broken world and a broken relationship with God and one another. And God could have just ended it right there and called it a failed experiment. But in his great compassion, he provided a small flicker of hope amidst the darkness of sin. But it doesn't look like that. It looks like a curse if you only read it in isolation and don't read the rest of God's story. He showed his hand regarding what his future plans would be. In Genesis 3.17, right after Adam and Eve were found out by God and found guilty, God says to them, Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat food from it all the days of your life. Hold on. Have any of you really read this and ask, what did the ground ever do to deserve being cursed? 
What did the ground do? Very good. Well, in God's grace, this verse, this verse, and what God has done since then has provided a signpost, a billboard, a blinking neon sign that points us towards the gospel. Famines, earthquakes, volcanic eruptions, landslides, all the rest, malaria, cancer. If we could see one one millionth of the world's suffering, even just for a moment, we would be overwhelmed and at the very least struggle with PTSD for the rest of our lives. And God sees it all, all the time. And it's the product of our choice to sin. You see, Satan's pride, that is the consequence of sin, which is death, disease, the brokenness of animals and plants and rivers and oceans, are God's portraits of the result of sin. An outward and very visible demonstration of what our sin does. It destroys, it confuses, and it brings death. That's what sin does. Yet Genesis 3 also tells us, it it gives us this flicker of hope, this pointing forward to Jesus by saying one day Jesus would crush Satan's head. He would crush sin. And we see tonight in this passage that Jesus takes on this wrath for anyone who has faith in him. We're not talking here about strong faith in some thing or some person as if strong faith in itself is noble. That's not what we're talking about. You know, many conclude this, that strong faith in and of itself is good enough. President Eisenhower even is reported to have once said that America was, I quote, founded on a deeply felt religious faith and I don't care what it is. As if all we really need is the moral compass of whatever faith. Not only is that hugely insulting to every faith, but it's also wrong. And it's the typical view today as well, isn't it? It's the object of our belief and not our belief itself that saves. I, am a, I may have a great unwavering faith that I can go to the top of this uh, building and strap some cardboard onto my arms and jump off and fly. I may have great faith that I'm going to do that, but the object of my faith is worthless. It's worthless. Also, on the other end, I may get onto a 747 jet with uh, my knees knocking full of fear and fully convinced that I'm going to crash and burn in the ocean. And you know what? My lack of faith wouldn't matter as long as I got on that, faith, that plane because the object of my faith would be strong. I may be fully convinced that I can build the foundation of my home in a muddy swamp, sure that my house is going to hold strong in that muddy, uh, you know, environment that's not conducive to a building. And I can be fully convinced that my house built on solid bedrock is not going to stand. It's the object of our faith that matters. It's not the weakness or strength of our faith that matters. It's the object of our faith that matters. That's why we don't have to worry when we struggle with doubt or when we look at our lives and think of how often we fail. We don't focus on our strength. We focus on the one who swallows God's wrath that we deserved. It's the object of our faith that saves. 
So righteousness through faith in Jesus, and Ephesians 2 says that even faith is a gift of God. It's not, you'll hear people say sometimes like he or she came into faith or they picked up faith or picked up religion. No, faith is implanted in us. It's a gift of God so that no one can boast. The same thing for the most part is said as well in Romans 3 verse 27. Paul says, where then is boasting? In light of all this, that faith is a gift of God, where is boasting? Can you boast? He says it's excluded. You know, you look at Paul's own, exper- his own experience, and you see why he thought this. His own testimony of his faith in Christ in Philippians 3. And worship team, you guys can go ahead and come on up. Philippians 3 verse 5. Paul's talking about his own faith experience. And he says, as a Jewish man, he says, Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law of Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for righteousness based on the law, faultless. So he's saying he did it all, that he had a great spiritual resume, a great religious pedigree. But then in verse 7, he says, But Whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but uh, that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. Paul had a great resume, but he didn't see it as his way to righteousness. God God saves by faith alone to eliminate pride. Because faith isn't something we do, it's a gift God gives. God saves by grace through faith so that it exalts God instead of what we do. Can you imagine the fear or the pride we would have if we thought that faith was somehow based on our own efforts? We'd constantly be seesawing into pride and fear that maybe I haven't done enough or look how much I've done. And it's based on a relationship with God and not performance for him. So even our best achievements have nothing for us, really. And our most painful failures cannot be held against us positionally before God. Anything we good we do because of, is because of his grace. And anything we do that is sin and that's against God's law is forgiven by grace. Because positionally, we're righteous because Jesus gave us his righteousness through faith. So I want to ask you tonight, do you know him? You might know Jesus in the sense that you know who he is and you know a couple of Bible verses and you think that you are good enough to deserve salvation. I'm not asking you about that false God. I'm asking you, do you know the Jesus that that prostitute knew when she was at that Pharisee's party? Where she was overwhelmed by God's grace and used her tears and her hair to wash and dry Jesus' feet. Do you know that Jesus, the thief on the cross, knew when he had nothing to offer God as he hung there? He could not do anything to please God with his hands because they were pinned to the cross. And he says with his mouth, surely this man is the son of God. 
And Jesus says, sure, you will be with me today in paradise. The Bible is God's story. And God's story is he created a perfect earth, created humanity to have a perfect relationship with him, and we blew it. And the rest of the story is about him pursuing us in the person of Jesus Christ. Do you sense his pursuit tonight? You can pass from death to life. That is, your spiritual DNA can be changed from that of sinner to child of God. And it's a simple profession, just as it was for the thief on the cross. And if you want to make that profession tonight, you can do it right here with me. I'm going to pray, and you can agree along with me. Just picture us just holding hands right there together, and you're repeating after me, not out loud, but in your heart. Let's pray. Jesus, I come to you now and agree with you that I'm a sinner, that I've tried to go my own way and be right apart from you. Lord, I'm turning away from my own efforts to be righteous, and now I'm turning to you. I thank you for shedding your blood, for dying on the cross and paying the penalty that I deserve. I receive that gift of faith right now. I thank you for your resurrection, that you rose from the dead, conquering sin and death to give joy, to give salvation, and to give freedom. I receive that freedom from sin, that freedom from condemnation and guilt right now through the resurrection. Jesus, now by your grace, I live for you as your child. In Jesus' name, amen.